Well, good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, turn to them, if you would, to Genesis 37. Many of you are new. This is your first Sunday with us, and some of you have been here for the entire course. But we started working our way through Genesis in January of 2017. So we have been plotting our way through this book. And uh, last Sunday night, as we have done all, all along in any text that we preach, we stop before we preach the, the, the text, and we have a reading service where we read through the entire 14 chapters we're going to be preaching on over these next months. And I got to tell you, last Sunday night when we got done preach, uh, reading through that, those passages, there was one thing that became very clear to me about these next 14 chapters and about this family. It is a messed up family. <laughs> this is definitely a messed up family. And you are going to see that in the weeks ahead. And one of the things that I want you to know, just right off the top, if you come here today and you think that you have something in your, in your past, you have a sordid past, something is back there that is less than desirable, or you come from a dysfunctional family that is so much so that you think God can't use you, then these next 12, 13 weeks should just absolutely obliterate that view. Because you are going to see God use some really messed up people to accomplish his purposes and his good. As we've been going through Genesis, we have seen themes. There have been a whole bunch of themes that we can see through Genesis. Some of the themes that we see is we have seen faithfulness. We have seen people who showed great faith, and we've seen those very same people at times show great lack of faith. So we have seen faithfulness over the, 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 uh, the chapters. The other thing that we have seen is in Genesis 3, we saw sin introduced. And then we have seen sin just explode in these chapters. We have seen great evil perpetrated on other people, where sin just seems to be growing more and more. And a third thing that we have seen in Genesis, and to me this is the most important, and I hope you don't ever forget it, don't forget the first four words of Genesis. In the beginning, God. This is his story, this is his plan, this is his creation, this is his doing, and this book, from the fifth word in Genesis to the final word in Revelation, God is revealing himself to us. He is telling us about his character. He is telling us about his many attributes. He is telling us what pleases him and displeases him. He is telling us what he would like to do and how he would like to interact with us and what he would like to do for us and with us. He is revealing himself to us in this book. So as we go through stories and chapters and we read through Genesis, let's always be looking. God should be in there somewhere. We should be seeing him revealing something about himself to us. So when we come to stories like today where we read about Joseph and we're going to see in this story that he starts in the comfort of his father's home. He's doing work. He has shelter. He has food. He has protection. He has a family. As dysfunctional as it may be, he has one. But by the end of the chapter, he's in chains. He's a slave. He's in a foreign land. 
And all of this has been the result of his brother's actions. And we see that in a very short period of time, Joseph's world gets turned upside down. And we can relate to that. We have our own lives where we wake up And in the morning, life is humming along as usual. And by nighttime, when we go to bed, something has happened, and we realize our life will never be the same. We get a notice at work. We get a diagnosis from a doctor. We get a phone call. We get a letter. Any of those things. We have an accident. Our family was coming home from our vacation. We were driving home on two-lane highways from the northwest, and we just came upon a spot where the roads stopped. All the cars stopped. We sat there for two hours in 105-degree heat, wondering what in the world was going on. And when I looked it up the next day on the Internet, what I found out was somebody decided they didn't want to wait, so they were going to make a pass on a two-lane highway around a truck in an area that was not appropriate. It was illegal to do a pass. But there was a vehicle coming the other way. Head-on collision resulted in the death of the driver of the other vehicle. Three of the four other passengers were airlifted to a hospital. I don't know if they survived, because when we drove by the scene finally later that night, I don't know how anybody was living in that vehicle. It was destroyed. And those people's world was changed like that. Everything was turned upside down. And we get to those places in our life, and that's where we come to and we say, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why didn't you intervene? Don't you care about me? Why are you leaving me here? Why am I languishing in this place? And we ask all these questions, and ultimately what we're doing is we're challenging the character of God. And what we need to see in this story as we read this story today, we don't need to see how Joseph is responding. We need to see where God is in this story. We just sang, you are good, these lyrics. God has us in this place, and all he does is good. And when our world collapses on us, is that where we go? Hopefully this morning, we will see more of the character of God. We will know God more and more so that when these things happen in our life, we can trust him. So this morning, as we look at this text, we're going to read Genesis 37. Here's what I'd like for you to look for in this text as we go through it. I'd like you to notice, what is man doing? What is the family doing? What are the people, the characters in this story, what are they doing? And then I'd like you to notice, what is God doing? So let's read Genesis 37. And then let's look at those things. And before we do, let me pray for us. Father, you know how people have come into this room this morning. You know where their life is at. You know if they're walking on top of a mountain or you know if they're, they're just slugging their way through a valley. Some people this week, their world may have been turned upside down. And we come here today, God, and we, we have questions and we wonder and we need to know you more. We need to know your character. We need to see that you can work through these circumstances So teach us this morning, Father. Help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to hear what you need us to hear. And have us be changed by your word this morning. In your name we pray.
Amen. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So let's remember, patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac are dead. Jacob is now the patriarch of the family. So these final 14 chapters, we're going to be looking at the generations of Jacob. Not just Joseph, though he has a primary role in a lot of this, but like next week, we're going to be looking at Judah. So these are the generations of Jacob that we're looking at. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now that would be Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. Those are the four brothers he is out pasturing the, the animals with. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow, down our, bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept, it, kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he went out from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now Shechem is 50 miles north of the valley of Hebron, so it's a journey that he has to take to get there. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said to him, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. Dothan, again, is another 15 miles further north, so he's now 65 miles from home. They saw him from afar, and before they came near to him, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. 
But when Reuben heard this, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. It's an interesting statement. You just plotted for your brother's demise. You just planned for his death. And they can sit down and eat. Callous. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then many night traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. But they refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. So what do we see men doing? I'm going to take the three things that I see, and, and they're all related to the family. Because part of what we have seen in Genesis is we have seen a family generational where we keep seeing the same things generation after generation. Or we see things where we read the text here and we say, wait a second, haven't I seen this before? Haven't we heard this before? And it keeps being repeated over and over again. So I'm going to look at three things that I see in this chapter that we can see have been repeated. The first is a positive thing, and that's faithfulness. I actually see the signs of faithfulness in this chapter. We had the patriarchs. We've seen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob demonstrate their faithfulness. And we get to this chapter, and we get to that first part of the verse where Joseph comes back, and he brings a report from, to his father of his brothers. And many people look at this part of the story, and they say, you know, Joseph is just being a, a bratty teenage boy. He's just tattletaling. He's snitching on his brothers. He's bringing a bad report to his brothers. Uh, to his father of his brothers. And I guess that's, that is a possibility. The text doesn't say. 
So I guess that is one option. But there is another option that Joseph could have actually been faithfully performing a duty that his father asked him to do. And the reason I lean towards that option is because we see in a few verses further that Jacob is going to ask Joseph to go out to the pasture to see what his sons and the flocks, to see how it's going, and to bring him a word. So we could be seeing the faithfulness of Jacob as he brings a report back to his father, even a negative report, a negative report that you know would have caused some issues in the family at that point in time. So I think one of the things we see repeated here is we see faithfulness. But the next two, the next one I see is favoritism. I mean, go back and look. We see that Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. And then we go further in the story, and Jacob goes to get a wife. He wants Rachel. He gets Leah. He makes arrangements to get Rachel. And then we get that line. And Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And we see the favoritism. And it produces an issue within the sisters. You see jealousy. You see Leah trying to earn favor with Jacob by producing sons. Maybe now he will love me. I've given him a son. Maybe now he will be connected to me. I've given him another son. And even later, I mean, it almost seems like it's a competition between the the sisters as to who's going to produce more sons for Jacob. You know, Rachel's losing for nothing. So let's um, let's put Billa in. Let's give him our maidservant and substitute. And Billa produces two sons for Jacob. And then we hear Rachel say, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. And we see this competition going on. Well, if she can give her maidservant, then Leah can give her maidservant. Now Zilpah gets in. And we end up with this family with 12 sons by four wives. You want to talk about a blended family. This is a blended family. And it creates all kinds of issues. Favoritism just didn't seem to work for the wives. Well, let's try it again with our sons and let's see what that does. So Joseph is loved more than any of the other brothers. Repeat. And what response do we get from that from the brothers? They hated it. They hated it. And then just to make sure that we all understand how much Joseph is loved more than the other brothers, Jacob makes him a coat. Now, we don't know exactly what this coat looks like. You know, we have the traditional multicolored stripe that we we think of. There's some commentators who think this may have been a long robe with long sleeves, that it was heavily ornamented and decorated in such a way that it was just a beautiful, colorful coat. We don't really know, and it really doesn't matter. What's more important than what the coat looked like is what the coat represented. The coat represented that Joseph was special. I love you more. You're favored. And when the other brothers would see it, they would see that. Dad loves him more than me. Will he ever love me like that? So there's this favoritism. And then the favorite son, who actually uh, Jacob said was his favorite son because he was born to him in old age. That's one thing. But also don't forget, he is the firstborn son of his favorite wife. So we have favoritism abounding. And then this favorite son has a dream. He has two dreams. And in both dreams, they are going to bow down to him and 
and he's going to be raised up? Our little brother? Now, the first dream had an agricultural theme to it. The second dream had a celestial theme to it. Celestial-themed dreams usually indicated ruling, reigning, authority. And so he tells them these dreams, and they hate him even more. It says he, they can't even speak peacefully to him. But Jacob, when Jacob rebukes him, you have that line that Jacob kept it in his mind. You wonder if already Jacob was seeing something in Joseph that was special or different. So favoritism. What's another theme that we see running through this family? We see deception as another theme that runs through this family. Remember, Jacob's name is the deceiver. He operated and conducted his life that way. He deceived Esau out of his birthright. He deceived Isaac in giving him Esau's blessing. So now Esau has been deceived out of his birthright and out of his blessing. And how does Esau respond? He hated his brother and plots to kill him. And so Jacob is sent away from the family. And how long was Jacob separated from his family because of the deception and the hatred that is built there? 20 years. Remember that number. We're going to see it again. Deception. Well, we have to remember that this is how Jacob conducted his life. He was a deceiver. He lived his life that way, manipulating people, controlling situations. And his sons lived under that. They saw it. They witnessed how he conducted his life. So it shouldn't surprise us when his sons get older if the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Right? And so we get in our story, and Joseph is heading to Dotham. And they're plotting to kill him, and Reuben steps in. But notice Reuben doesn't step in like the older brother and say, Stop. This is wrong. We cannot do this. No, what does Reuben do? He tries to deceive his brothers. What he says is, Let's not shed his blood. Let's throw him in a pit. Now, these cisterns were built to collect rainwater, they were deep. They were often lined around the top with a smooth material. If you fell in or were placed in one of these cisterns, you would not get out without help. So in essence, what he was saying was, put him in the pit, we'll leave him there, he'll die eventually, and the brothers were, okay, that works, we'll do it. But Reuben never had that plan. He was going to come back later and take him out. He's trying to deceive his brothers. Well, there's a problem. When you're a deceiver and you hang around deceptive people, you never know when they're going to deceive you. And Reuben is off, and the brothers are eating, and all of a sudden Judah gets this idea. Wait a second. What profit is this if we just leave him there to die? Let's sell him. Let's make money off of this. Let's rake in some cash. Let's get some loot. That's what he's saying here. Let's make money off of him. And so they plot to sell him. And Reuben comes back to the pit. Why is he coming back? He's away from his brothers at this point. He's coming back to take Joseph out of the pit to take him back to his father. And guess what? Joseph's not there. He's been duped. And deception is running deep in this family. But we're not done with our deception. You see, 
We have a father we need to deceive now. Now, it seems to me in this day and age that if there's a father that needs to be deceived by his son, one of the things you don't want to be is a goat. Because it seems a goat is the animal of choice in the deception of fathers. (laughs) Jacob kills a goat and deceives Isaac. The brothers kill a goat, and they're going to use it to deceive Jacob. So they kill this goat, they dip his coat in blood, they take it back to Jacob, and they make a deceiver's statement, and they ask a curious question. You say, well, what's a deceiver's statement? I don't know if you've had the misfortune of having to work with people who are deceptive on a regular basis. But one of the things deceptive people do is they use words in a very specific manner. They will use a word that 99% of you, in the context it's used, is going to think this. But they mean this. And part of the reason they do that is so if you come back to them later and say, you said, they can say, no, I didn't. This is what I said. This is what I meant. I didn't lie. But nobody would take it to mean that. So you say, well, what's a deceiver's statement? This we have found. Now you look at that. In that context, they hand them a coat, and they say, this we have found. And any normal person is going to go, oh, you were out pasturing the flock. You came across this. It was on a road. It was in a ditch. It was under a bush, under a tree. It was, in a, it was somewhere, and you picked it up, and you brought it to me. That's what a normal person would think with that statement. But the truth is, they found the coat. Where did they find it? On Joseph. That's where they found it. They are deceivers. It's a deceiver's statement. And then they ask this curious question. Dad, identify this and tell tell us if it is your son's coat. First of all, it's your son's coat? It's not Joseph's coat. It's not our brother's coat. There is a separation here. They have already separated and distanced themselves from Joseph. Tell us if it is your son's coat. Now remember, this is the coat that they hated. This is a -a one-of-a-kind coat. This is a special, beautiful coat. Everybody knew this coat. And now, all of a sudden, you're going to bring it back to your father and play dumb? Like, uh, we have no idea if this is his coat or not. Really? Well, Jacob takes the bait. Hook, line, and sinker. He mourns for his son. The family continues the deception because they are going to join in the mourning process. And then they continue the deception even further because for years they are going to live the lie that Joseph was killed and they know he wasn't and they never say a word. So we end this story with all the deception, all the favoritism, and we see that Jacob is now mourning his son. Joseph is in prison, in chains, in a foreign land. And that's where we are, and that's what man has done. So I ask you, where do you see God? And I can imagine that some of you, if you're you know, taking notes, you may have done a T-graph as you go through this chapter, as you study it, and go, these are all the things that we see man doing, and there's a litany of them that we can list. 
And then I look over to the other column and I say, well, you know, there's a problem. It's conspicuously empty. That's my question. That's our question. Where are you, God? Your name is not written in these pages at all. I don't see you stopping this evil. I don't see you preventing Joseph from going to Egypt. I don't see you taking out any of the brothers. I don't see you preventing Jacob from having to mourn the fictitious death of his son. I don't see you doing anything, God. Where are you? And that's our question. And that's why it's so important that we have stories like this in the Bible that we can go to and we have the advantage of moving to the end of the story so we can see where God is, so we can go back to the story and go, oh yeah, I see his fingerprints there. So we're going to jump ahead 22 years for one verse. So if you want, turn to Genesis 45.5. I'll have it on the screen as well. If you want a parallel verse to this, you can look at Psalm 105.16, I believe it is. 105.16 picks up on this same passage. And this is Joseph speaking to his brothers 22 years later. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Wait a second. God sent me? I thought Joseph was in Egypt because of the evil actions of his brothers. I thought his brothers sold him into slavery, and that's how he got to Egypt. God sent me? This is God's providence. This is one of those attributes and characteristics of God that I study at times, and I get to a point where going, okay, I get it. And then I read another sentence or another paragraph and go, okay, I don't get it. And I don't understand always how God, but the Bible clearly teaches God sent Joseph to Egypt. In fact, in Psalm 105, you're going to read, God brought the famine. Really? Well, then we should be able to go back to the chapter and we should see God's fingerprints all over this. So let's do that. So let me ask you a question. Who gave Joseph his dream? God. That wasn't just something that Joseph happened to have one night, and gee, it related to what was going on, and it had a family connection. God gave him the dream. Was it a coincidence that Jacob asked Joseph to go back out and check on his brothers and the flock, knowing the dissension and the hatred there was in that family? You think that was a coincidence? Was it a coincidence that when Joseph is meandering through Shechem, and he can't find his brothers, that he just happens to come across somebody who knows where his brothers went? Is it a coincidence that when he comes to his brothers and they're plotting to kill him, that Reuben just happens to step in, even in a deceptive manner, and keep him from being killed? Is it a coincidence that Judah, even though his intentions were evil, decided to sell him into slavery? Is it a coincidence that that caravan of merchants just happened to come by at that time to buy Joseph? Is it a coincidence that Joseph, when he gets to Egypt, and he could have been sold to anybody in Egypt, he is sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh? That's not coincidence. That's God superintending this entire situation. That is God going with, 
with Joseph and putting him exactly where he wants him. Exactly where he wants him. Why? Why? Why did Joseph have to go to Egypt? To preserve life. To save life. Whose? Let's start with his family. His brothers. Let me use another word. His abusers. Ooh. I mean the very ones who perpetrated this evil against him that caused him to go to Egypt is now the one that Jacob being in Egypt is going to save? It begs a question. I've had this question in the past. I'll ask you, do you want your abusers saved? There have been times in my life when if somebody would say to me, do you want your abusers saved? No. I'd rather they rot in hell. That's where my heart is. And God would come up to me at those points in time and he'd say, Kip, are you sure you don't want your abusers saved? Yeah, I'm sure. Can we go on a journey? Sure. And he takes me on a journey. And we get back from that journey and he asks me a simple question. Kip, do you want your abusers saved? Yes. Why the change of heart? Because he reminded me, I am the abuser. And I need to be saved. And I want to be saved. But God, do you have to use me? Do you have to use Joseph as the mechanism through which you're going to be abused to save the abuser? Well, that's the way God works sometimes. That's the way he works sometimes. Who else is being saved? Well, don't forget, Joseph is being saved. He would have died in this famine along with his family. Egypt is being saved. The text we'll learn later says the whole world is being saved. So you mean God sent Joseph to Egypt. Oh, when did he send him there? Before. Before. Now remember, we operate in three, in three ways. We're early, we're late. Excuse me. We're early, we're on time, we're late. God's never late, so he's either early or on time. We never like either one, it seems like, because there's times in our life where we say, God, would you please, God, would you, I need it now, I need it now, I need it now, and God goes, just wait, I'll give it to you. Just wait. I'll give it to you when you need it. And there are other instances like this where God's working before and we're going, God, you have to work so early. Couldn't you just wait and deal with it and the day when it happened? 22 years, really? You've got to work that far in advance? But before Joseph, before his brothers, before any of them even knew they needed to be saved, God was already at work. So he is with Joseph as he is going into Egypt and he is working out a plan for 22 years later. But you know, as you read Joseph's story, one of the things you're going to see is Joseph is a foreshadow of something to come because God's going to send another man. And that man's going to be in a garden one night and he is going to be pleading with his father not to have to endure what is before him. Pleading to the point he is going to sweat blood. And why is the son of man in the garden pleading with God the father about that? What is their strategy? What is their plan? Well, they need to save their abusers. 
You see, if we don't realize that Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt is a direct link to the cross, it is a direct link to the cross, then we're missing it. So God is working Joseph's time. He's working 22 years later. He's working thousands of years later, which means who else is being saved? See, you better see your name and my name in that story because we are being saved because Joseph went into Egypt as a slave. God is working so far beyond anything that we can imagine. Can you imagine if Joseph would have said to God, explain to me what you're doing here, God. Oh, I've got these people in Southern California in America about X thousand years from now, and they're going to be saved because you're going into Egypt. Really? I, I wouldn't understand it. I wouldn't comprehend it. Why do we need to see this? We need to understand that God is working so far ahead of us. If you're in the Romans reading plan with us, we're reading through the New Testament. We're in Romans right now. Tomorrow you're going to read Romans 11. And there's this great doxology at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? You see, we come to these circumstances and we need to just learn about the character of God. We need to know God. We need to be able to trust him. As a little child would come when something happens that they don't understand and run to his parents and leap in the arms of his parents and be comforted, not because he has an understanding of what's going on around him, but because he knows who's holding him. And that's what we need when we have these situations in our life where our world turns upside down, where we don't run from God, we run to him because we know the one who holds us and we can trust him. On Friday, you're going to read Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. He fills us with his joy and his peace. What do we have to do? As you trust him. Why? So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, that's our desire. Our desire is to know you so well that when these circumstances hit us like Joseph that we can trust in your character. We can trust in who you are. We can see that in so many places in Scripture, you have walked people through incredibly dark places. And nobody at the time would understand what in the world you're doing, but when we get perspective and we can look back on it and we see what you do, all of a sudden we understand it's good. So God, would we trust you even in the midst of it, to know that you are a good God and that you have not left us, you are with us, that you are being our strength and our support in those situations, and that you will carry us and we can trust you because your character has demonstrated it to be, true, to be trustworthy. 
Make us more that way today, Father, I pray. Amen.